Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Facebook will no longer be fact-checking Donald Trump. We have an interesting show today. Ambassador Gordon Sondland stops by to talk to us about his time under Trump and his new book, The Envoy. Then we're joined by Nick Turner, president and director of the Vera Institute, who will talk to us about crime and the effect it had on the midterms. And lastly, we are joined by the one and only George Conway for our moment of fuckery and to talk about former President Trump's 2024 stay out of jail run for president gambit but first we are joined by editor-in-chief of the recount slade somer welcome to fast politics slade it is always a pleasure to be here and i cannot wait to discuss some stories with you we are giddy today because uh we had the midterms. The Republicans, do they even yet officially control the House? I don't think it's official, but... <laughs> They're stuck at 218, I think, right? Yeah, I don't think it's official, but I think it's as as solid as can be. Yeah, they're going to control the United States Congress by two, three seats, right? Yeah, probably three or five seats. But I will say something we did at the recount yesterday these things fluctuate within each Congress. It is entirely possible that with some <laughs> right. resignations and some deaths and, you know, all that kind of macabre, you never know. Special elections. There was no red wave. Very disappointing. Turns out, shockingly, those very right wing Trafalgar polls done by the guy with the mustache and the bow tie, those were not very good polls. Not very good polls at all. <laughs> it's pretty wild. I feel like I saw 
that he had Peter Welch in a runoff or not like a runoff, but like in a dead heat. And it's like Peter Welch won by 40 points. You'll remember Peter Welch being the uh, congressman from Vermont running for the non-Bernie Sanders, the Pat Leahy Senate seat. It was not even close at all. Yeah, it was. I think he was off by 37 points. (laughs) But who's counting? Yeah, you know, look, that that's close enough. I mean, you know, the whole idea is just to get close. It's been a rough time for them. They did not win. They did not win back the Senate. They did not. Now they're going right now. The Senate is uh, Democrats have 50 seats. Republicans have 49 seats on December 6th. We're going to see a runoff in Georgia between Herschel Walker. Heard of him. Perhaps you've heard of him. (laughs) And uh, Reverend Warnock. Herschel Walker, if he gets all of his children to vote for him, it's still not enough. Oh, I don't know. I was going to say it would be a landslide. (laughs) I don't think so. Yeah, and and it looks like Mitch McConnell's not going to be spending a bunch of money there uh, or or really any money. (laughs) You know, there's going to be a lot of private money coming in and stuff like that. But this seat is necessary and, and... the number of times I've pe- seen people on Twitter and elsewhere say like, well, as long as we have the 50, we should be fine. No, and it's but- like Kirsten Cinema is in an election year. She's now in an election cycle. She did not come out to a single Arizona event supporting anyone in the Democratic Party. She has been seen cavorting with Republicans. You absolutely need that Georgia seat. Like, I, I think anyone who's yeah. complacent about this is crazy. But there's also even more minutia, which is that if you have 51 seats, you have more power on the committees too. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, I mean, I think the number of people who fully understand discharge position petitions and, and committee gamesmanship is one. Yeah. I like, I think that's such a low number. Suffice it to say you want that 51st seat. You really do. Yeah. So let's talk about what's happening. So we got this runoff. It's happening in a little more, a little less than a month. Then we have this incredible contest now. Republicans are they're trying to figure out who to blame you know, for what happened because they're very into blaming. Here are the choices. Trump, mm-hmm. right? Some of them are blaming Trump. Voters. Uh-huh. A lot of them are blaming voters, not scared enough about crime. I'm sure you saw Jesse Waters saying that uh, single women were to blame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we blew that up. Absolutely. You know, him saying that that single women were captured by the mm-hmm. Democratic Party, I think is the way that he said it. we got to wipe those people up. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it. one might think like a normal party would stop and say, like, wonder why people hate our policies. But that is not what's happening here. No. And then the, the last person I would put on that list is also Mitch McConnell taking a lot of smoke from the MAGA wing. And... You know, the funny thing about that is like they're kind of right, but not for the reasons that they think like Mitch McConnell did everything he could to get Republican candidates across the finish line. He actually was a bit of a savior at the end of the day. The problem with McConnell is he's the guy who rammed through a couple Supreme Court justices that pushed through Dobbs. But, you know, he's now in a kind of cold war with uh, the guy who we name we don't say because we don't want to get sued. Elon Musk? 
No. <laughs> but it rhymes with that's my spiel. Oh, good call. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I certainly will not say that, you know, he's probably drinking the blood of twinks as we speak. The thing I thought of, and I never tweeted this because I didn't want to get in trouble, but I'll say it here because, you know, I, I do want to get in trouble, was that I did think Blake Masters, who is – 11 years old, looked a lot like a blood boy. Yeah. He very much had that, like, uh, Nicholas Holt from Mad Max Fury Road thing going on where, yeah. you know, he's just, he is a blood bag. Whew. What a guy. Amazing. I, I, I look at Blake <laughs> Masters and I'm like, like, this is the poster boy for every kind of under- I don't know, how old is he, 40, 30-something? 12. Yeah, like, you know, every under 40 kind of towing the line between MAGA ridiculousness and, like, libertarian, techno-libertarian bullshit. It's quite wild. And, you know, the, the blame game is fantastic. I'm enjoying the hell out of this. One of the really interesting, speaking of Blake Masters, data points is, so in Arizona, Blake Masters did not win, and neither did everyone's favorite election denier, filtered former local news anchor, Carrie Lake. And so now Republicans, instead of being like, wow, our swing state candidates sucked, they're like, which I think a normal party would do. They're like, you're seeing so many of these MAGA people being like, they were really talented candidates. I hope they run again. Yeah. Really? I hope they run again, too. Yeah, I, I certainly hope they run again. You know, it, it's one of those things where, <laughs> it, it, like, the other Mitch McConnell thing here is that he's very on record as saying, you know, candidate quality matters. And everybody really told him to shut the hell up, even liberals, you know, even, you know, even people on the left who were saying like, you know, no, like, uh, uh, like it doesn't matter. You know, everyone's just going to vote across party line if they have an R next to their name. I think I said that too on this very podcast a couple weeks ago, you know, and, and, you know, thankfully, you know, a bunch of these cases, you know, that, that didn't play out. But, you know, the Republican civil war that is going to unfold over the next, you know, two to three weeks, uh, if not longer, when Trump and DeSantis get into a, a you know, the big boy fight. Um, this is really fun to watch. You know, we, we should get into the fact that Rick Scott, another kind of blood bag seeming gentleman, you know, Rick Scott is now fully entering the challenge to McConnell race, the, the minority leader race. And to bring this back to our Pat Leahy invocation before, Pat Leahy was in all the Batman movies. I am sitting over here with full Joker, Heath Ledger, Joker paint saying, away we go. I want to quote young Tommy Tuberville, who is right now the dumbest member of the Senate that can all change in December if Herschel Walker gets elected. But Tommy Tuberville supports McConnell. But uh, wants to wait until everybody, we have everybody here. We don't know whether Herschel Walker is going to be here or not. I mean, I'm telling you, like, amazing. Amazing. It's amazing that they're all kind of saying the same thing, which is 
you would be disrespectful to Herschel Walker. And it's like, <laughs> Herschel Walker has no idea what a Senate leadership election is. <laughs> he literally, there's no chance that Herschel Walker is like, I feel disrespected by you guys having this without me. He's probably like, you know, what happens if I win? Where do I go? Can I put my feet up on this desk? Like, there's just not a chance that he has any idea what's going on. Well, and also, I think we've it's been very clear that Herschel Walker is going to vote however they tell him to vote, which is why they want him in the first place. So, you know, I mean, it's just ama- the idea that we're going to wait for Herschel Walker to decide the leadership. Um, but I would also like to just point out for a minute that you have Rick Scott, who is, I mean, again, we don't know the internal machinations of what happened. I'm sure there will be more reporting. But he's certainly from the outside, he looks like he did it terrible job. Right. And then we have Mitch McConnell who, right, you know, he didn't like the, he doesn't like Trump world, but he's been very effective. And now we're going to have the two of them face off. Yeah. It's it's big, big, let them fight energy. (laughs) I don't really quite understand, you know, where Rick Scott gets off thinking that he deserves anything in this life. They lost a seat in an election with an unpopular Democratic president. I mean, that's enough for you to be shunned from the party for a lifetime, let alone you thinking you deserve higher leadership capabilities, especially after it came out that you were sitting on a yacht, you know, as a hundred something million dollars was being squandered. I just like, Whatever you think about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, he should have zero support, less than zero support. <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis, less than zero time. I fully just don't really understand. Like, it's one thing for a lot of mediocre white guys like myself to fail up privately. Oh, it's another thing to fail up publicly, like to be in right. the public eye and fail up is such an accomplishment. So I don't know, maybe I'm giving him less credit than he deserves. I guess the lesson here is that Medicare fraud is easier than Republican politics. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. I mean, it's a good gig if you can get it. Right, exactly. But yeah, House Republicans met on Tuesday. It seems like Republicans voted 188 to 31 to nominate McCarthy for speaker over Andy Beggs. So that sounds like McCarthy's got it. McCarthy will now be the slave of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I say this with as, as nonpartisanly as possible. For someone as dumb as Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, they because the Republicans seem great. I definitely want in on that. Sorry, go on. Yeah. I just think that Kevin McCarthy is not a very smart guy and he's not a very talented politician. And I don't really quite understand how he's made it this far. Handsome. And and I do not envy him. Like his next two years are going to be freaking hell on earth as he tries to placate, you know, It was not easy for Nancy Pelosi to have a very big tent around a lot of issues and corral every single Democrat to do what she wanted, which she did. McCarthy only really has two wings at the end of the day, and that's like establishment rich tax cut Republicans and MAGA rich tax cut Republicans. And like, I still don't know that he's going to be able to corral all those people. I was looking forward to some sort of big challenge that went completely chaotic and ended up with Tulsi Gabbard as speaker. <laughs> well, they would like Trump as speaker, right? Yeah. I mean, there's always I, 
I think my favorite process story in all of politics is when you get that story about which non-sitting member of the House should be the speaker <laughs> because nobody could agree. And, and I saw Tulsi's name floated and I laughed for two hours. Low stakes, that would be the funniest political story of our lifetimes. <laughs> Just every day. Yes, I agree. But the real speaker will be Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the best thing that Marge ever did was figure out how to raise a lot of money and, you know, get a lot of airtime. And, you know, she would be relegated to the dustbin of history if, you know, if she weren't such an effective fundraiser and shameless communicator. So yeah, I mean, he's got whatever the right word is for the freedom caucus, because it's certainly not freedom. You know, he's going to have a real, real tough time reining these people in. Gates came out for Jordan yesterday, who then immediately turned around and was like, no, 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 no I'm good. I'm with McCarthy. Uh, so, so some wires got crossed there. If Jordan mounted a serious challenge, I do think this would have gotten interesting. Jordan, obviously, is a very smart guy, and he wants to be, well, I shouldn't say obviously. Jordan is a smarter guy than he looks and he sounds. And I do think that him knowing that he's going to be the chair of the Judiciary Committee is a way easier and better job than Speaker. So, you know, I give him a lot of kudos for that. But, you know, I don't know. Like, I think Kevin McCarthy, who has been over his head for years, is going to absolutely sink in the next six to 12 months. Oh, yeah. Even a talented politician wouldn't be able to do this. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, you know, Pelosi, I, I will say, for all Pelosi's faults, and I do right. think that she has faults, I do not think that Nancy Pelosi is nearly as infallible as uh, a lot of the, the folks who made the memes of her clapping are. But, you know, at the same time, like, she was able to corral that Democratic caucus in a way that I, I have not seen in a really long time. I mean, I think we're going to look back at the 2016 to 2021 Pelosi era as like, holy fucking shit. How did she do that? Yeah, no, she's been very effective. Uh, let's talk about Ronna. McDaniel, Romney. Yeah, sure. I, when you said Ron, I was like, are you going to go Johnson, DeSantis, or no McDaniel on this one? I can't believe Ron Anon got reelected. Rhonda, Rona, McDaniel, McDonough, Romney. She really, not great. Not great. Anytime you can sit there and lose the Senate and a couple, you know, you lose the midterm election in 2018, lose the presidential election in 2020, lose the midterm in 2022, and then have the gall <laughs> to reach out to people and say, please congratulate me online, which is something that she did according to reporting. Just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Yeah. It's such a weird time for these Republicans. And they really are. They seem to be kind of more like, you know, they're the people who are trying to kind of like back away slowly from Trump without him noticing. Right. And then there are the people, you know, you're seeing like I saw uh, Cynthia Loomis from Wyoming, right? A state with seven people. Um, she I'm sorry if you're a Wyoming person, I'm sorry, you have hundreds of thousands of people in your state. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but uh, she was sort of backing away slowly. You're seeing some of that. But then you're seeing Elise Stefanik, a very ambitious woman, has already endorsed Donald Trump, even though he hasn't announced. Yeah, that was crazy to me. I mean, especially because when Elise Stefanik got elected, she did 
present herself as like a rational person who wasn't going to, you know, go full right wing. She wanted to work in a bipartisan way. That first impeachment, she just saw the the light and uh, went for it. And the fact that she endorsed before it was even a reality, I mean, it's still not. Right, no, I know. It just is, is, is craven. I mean, it's just craven. But, you know, with Ronald McDaniel, oh, and by the way, I should say, it's Cynthia Lummis. And the only reason why I know yeah, that, sorry. and Matt Lummis, <laughs> the only reason why I know that is because she had, like, a get-to-know-me thing in the Senate where she did a rhymes with hummus and brought out hummus, which was an incredible <laughs> side story about Cynthia Lummis. Because I went and did like Lummis pronunciation once, and it's like her holding a bowl of hummus. And I was like, okay, this woman is amazing or crazy. Amazing. I know. She's very into crypto, too. Oh, man. Good week for her, then. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, just unbelievable stuff. I mean, look, uh, the one thing I'll say is if if you want to put a bow on this conversation. Oh, I do. You know, the, the one thing I will say is that everything we just laughed at, you know, everything that we think is crazy, everything that we think is off the charts absurd will 100% come back to bite us in the ass. Oh, you yeah. know, there will no in question. 6 months the tide will turn, something'll happen, all of a sudden Republicans will be in favor of it again, and we're going to look like absolute clowns for for laughing at this. Let's hope. <laughs> no, I I don't hope, but I agree. It's the law of punditry is that sooner or later this will be used to uh end us. Yeah. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. 
Gordon Sondland is the former U.S. ambassador to the EU and author of The Envoy. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ambassador Gordon Sondland. Are you still called ambassador or honorable? Well, I'll tell you a better story. When I first got the title ambassador after I took the oath of office, the first person who addressed me was my then wife who said, Mr. Ambassador, would you please take out the fucking garbage? (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't help, right? (laughs) You're apparently accorded the title for life, but it's up to you if you want to use it. (laughs) You know, it's funny because it's like you were so instrumental in that first Trump impeachment. You were a witness. You were really interesting part of that. And then now we've come back to that whole story has really dominated the news cycle. So let's first talk about that first impeachment. How do you even get there? Well, I think this conversation is about the new book I just released, The Envoy. Yes. Let's talk about that. So in The Envoy, you talk about this, but talk to us, our listeners who may have not read the book yet, about how exactly you got there. Well, I got there because apparently someone listened in on the conversation between President Trump and President Zelensky and decided to take it upon him or herself to create a whistleblower sort of framework in that they thought that the uh, conversation was highly inappropriate, which then ultimately resulted in the impeachment inquiry and the impeachment uh, without a conviction of President Trump. My own feelings, based on having been deeply involved in the process, including the benefit of 2020 hindsight, that nothing that happened at that time warranted an impeachment. That was a ballot box issue. I think the issue was well aired. The transcript of the call was made public and the voters could decide in 2020 whether they wanted to reelect President Trump or not based on that and a lot of other things that he did or didn't do. You felt like that conversation between Trump, the this is the famous conversation, was not impeachable? Explain. It was not impeachable. It was not perhaps appropriate. He was conflating two different things in that call. What two things? Well, he was obviously at the, you know, once the call became public, he was conflating concern about his opponent and his opponent's son with a discussion with a foreign leader about a meeting in the Oval Office. And I didn't think it was appropriate the way that call was handled. Was it an impeachable offense? Was it a high crime and misdemeanor? In my view, this is my personal view. I don't think so. I'm curious. So you think it's okay for presidents to do stuff like that? I didn't say that, Molly. I said I wouldn't have handled it that way. Okay. I also understand the gravity of taking a duly elected politician, Democrat, Republican, whatever, and impeaching them every time they do something that we think is inappropriate or we don't like. I don't feel that way about January 6th. I do believe that January 6th was impeachable. I did not think the Ukraine situation was. You had already been this ambassador to the European Union. You had been on many calls like this, but had you ever heard a president sort of say, like, if you do this, I'll do that? I just heard Joe Biden say it to the Saudis. Please don't reduce oil production until after the midterms. (laughs) Well, all right. Molly, it's completely equivalent. I heard President Obama speak with President Medvedev and say, I will have more flexibility after the election. I've heard many, many, many presidents conflate 
their own political aspirations with U.S. foreign policy. I did not think that President Biden or President Obama should be impeached on either of those conversations. I think they were inappropriate, however. So you think that trying to keep gas prices down is the same as uh, trying to get dirt on your opponent? Uh-huh, I do. Really? Yeah. What you're doing is you're basically taking an asset of the United States which is the leverage that you have with a foreign country and saying, this will help me in my election or in the election of my colleagues if you artificially do something differently than you normally would do for my benefit. And then after the election transpires, then do what you have to do. Absolutely. It's 100 percent equivalent. I can't believe you don't see it that way. Uh, well, I mean, I also believe that OPEC is price fixing scheme. So I don't think that lowering gas prices. I don't disagree with you that he wasn't lowering gas prices. Right. Well, I'm just saying to make a case for lowering gas prices when uh, Americans were suffering at the pump, it may eventually benefit Biden, though it may not. Right. We saw that voters didn't really care about gas prices in this election. And they certainly could have, and most predictions where they would have. Let's get back to the real point here, which is when does one use impeachment in the House and then a conviction in the Senate to deal with political disagreements or even disagreements of propriety versus what I think the framers wanted impeachment used for, which was a high crime and misdemeanor. You can shoehorn almost anything into that if you wish. I really like settling these things at the ballot box. I don't think when January 6th occurred and we didn't properly turn the keys over to Biden and the election was questioned when it was clear that the election, even though, yes, I think there was some election fraud, I think Biden was the duly elected president. I don't think whatever election fraud occurred rose to a level that changed the outcome of the election. And I think the insurrection and violence at the Capitol, the treatment of the vice president were despicable. And I do think that was an impeachable offense. I just want to get back because you have a really interesting story in a lot of ways. You have Jewish parents. You grew up in Washington state, very ambitious. You remind me of a lot of people I know in my life, donor to Jeb Bush. I know a lot of people like that too, giving money, getting an ambassadorship. I have a lot of friends who've had that experience. Somehow during this process, you went MAGA or you went along with MAGA. And so I'm curious, like, how does that happen? No, 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 no. First of all, <laughs> My first political donation was to Senator Henry Jackson, a Democrat. Okay. I served under Governor Ted Kulongowski for two terms as the chairman of his video and film office, a Democrat. No, I'm making a case that you are that you come from a very middle of the road Republican party. I come from a centrist place. My candidates were George Bush 43, right. John McCain, Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, and then finally the one that got elected at a time where I was able to serve because I was not able to serve as an ambassador when George Bush was president. It was too soon in my career. It happened to be Donald Trump. Donald Trump was the Republican elected president. And if you're going to get an ambassadorship, you don't say no. You take, right. you know, <laughs> because you never you never know when it's going to come along again. Was I a member of the MAGA movement? I was never a member of the MAGA movement. I don't even own a MAGA hat. Well, that's 
probably good. An ambassadorship is amazing. I mean, it's just an incredible opportunity. But I'm curious to know, were you like, but I have to do it with this president? Were you like, I can't, you know, I mean, Jeb Bush was not a Trump fan. Well, let me tell you something. The more I got into the job and the more I understood where we were vis-a-vis the EU, and I understood the specifics of what I had to do, I supported a great deal of President Trump's policies. I continue to support President Trump's policies. Like what? Oh my God, the list is endless. Just to be clear, what I don't support, and I've said this publicly, is I don't support President Trump being the 2024 nominee. I think those policies can be ably carried forward by one of the six or seven or eight candidates that are out there on the Republican side who I think are all qualified to be president and could hit the ground running, many of whom would use those policies. But what about like, I mean, like, for example, you're the ambassador to the European Union for a president who hates NATO. He doesn't hate NATO. I mean, I can find a bunch of things he said about NATO. He does not like NATO. I mean, didn't you find that kind of crazy? Do you want to tell me what he likes or do you want me to tell you my experience? I want you to tell me your experience. My experience was that he correctly observed that we were picking up the lion's share of the bill, allowing the other NATO members to skate. And he was the first president. All the presidents brought this up quietly and privately. He was the first president to say, this is bullshit. We are here. We're your friends. We're your allies. Do your part. Write your checks. Join us in defending yourself. And frankly, even the secretary general of NATO told me in a quiet moment, best dues collector we've ever had, because he publicly prodded, particularly the Germans, who were terrible on this, to step up and do their part. But then what about like Trump discusses pulling U.S. from NATO? Like, I mean, do you think he was just joking? I mean, what do you think that was? No, I think he was... I think he was doing what any negotiator does in any negotiation. And that is something, again, that we're not used to seeing in a politician. It's very counterintuitive and it's very contrarian. He was saying, look, I have to find points of leverage in order to get people to do things that are in the United States interest. And everyone does that. And the way I do that is by threatening to pull up my marbles and go home. Was he ever really going to do that? No, I don't think he was. But I'll tell you, it had the intended effect on those sort of recalcitrant members of NATO who are getting by with murder, frankly, for the last 20 years in terms of their payment history. So your feeling is that Trump was doing three-dimensional chess? 100%. Really? Yep. That's a bold, bold statement. I'm curious then, like Trump's relationship with, and and you've talked about this and you've written about this, Rudy Giuliani, does that fall into the three-dimensional chess milieu? No. Thanks for the milieu. I like that. (laughs) I'm fancy. You're fancy. No, no. Rudy Giuliani was brought into this Ukraine thing over the strenuous objections, not only of me, but of Ambassador Kurt Volker, of Secretary Perry. We thought that Rudy Giuliani had no business being involved in this at all. But Trump insisted. He's the president. 
And our choices were very simple. We had gone to the inauguration of Zelensky. We spent a lot of time with Zelensky, and we thought Zelensky was really someone that the United States could do business with. And we were very disappointed that Trump sort of dismissed it offhand and said, I don't want to deal with this. Talk to Rudy. And we all looked at each other and said, what did Rudy have to do with this? He's your lawyer. He's not a member of the Trump administration. Unfortunately, Rudy was involved and he shouldn't have been. Did you try to ever talk to Rudy? And what was it like? Well, I don't know, Rudy. There was this there was these stories going around that Rudy and I were off cooking up deals or this or that. I never even met Rudy until August of that year, long after we had met with President Trump. And I only met him by text. Right. How were his texts? I mean, he's like famous for calling journalists. And, you know, you've been very frank about a lot of things. What what was your hot take on Rudy? I don't think Rudy was effective in what we were trying to do, which was simply to get an Oval Office meeting for Zelensky with Trump without any preconditions. But Rudy went to Ukraine, right? Rudy was doing all kinds of things that we were not aware of. Rudy was intersecting his work for Trump as Trump's lawyer, his own private business, and God knows what else. That was the problem with having anyone like a Rudy involved in a serious diplomatic initiative. You're very generous, as I think, well, you should be with a lot of these career public servants in the Foreign Service. And one of the things we saw after the impeachment was that a bunch of them really got the wrong end of Trumpism. I mean, how do you square that? Like a Marie Yovanovitch or uh, I mean, you know, some of them went on to be more political. Others did not. What was your take on that? Well, again, all I can speak to is my own personal experience with any of these people. I'm not going to comment on news reports or on third party views. No, but I mean, you liked Maria Yovanovitch. You thought she was very talented. And then her career ended. No, I said both in my testimony and in my book, I dealt with her on a limited basis. I went to Odessa in February of 19. She was the sitting ambassador at the time, and she had a role to play. She was just great. Uh, She was hospitable. She gave us some good insight as to Poroshenko, who was the sitting president at the time. I spent some time with Poroshenko. She called me a couple of times after after that trip, uh, and my dealings with her were just fine. They were very professional. She wasn't a friend. I didn't like her. I didn't dislike her. I mean, she was fine. Right. But how do you square that with that she sort of had her career smushed by Trumpism? I can tell you that in the transcript, if you read the transcript of the call that Trump made with Zelensky, Zelensky wasn't very happy with her and told Trump that. Yeah, but he doesn't make the rules. Well, Molly, 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 come on. You're smarter than that. You have the leader of a country telling the president of the United States I don't think your ambassador that you've put here is very effective. That's going to resonate with the president of the United States. And he has the 100 percent prerogative, just as Joe Biden does right now, to say, I'm going to make a change and put someone there that that's going to be more effective in representing my interests. Again, I'm not suggesting that Marie Ivanovich did anything wrong, but Trump certainly has the right to do that. So do you think Trump fired her because of that? Because that's the inference you're making. No, I don't know why Trump fired her, but it's interesting that when you become an ambassador, just under, just remember this, when you become an ambassador, you have to pass what's called agreement. Do you know what that is? No, tell us. When you're nominated, 
your host, your country, in this case, the United States, sends a letter to the host country saying, we are thinking of nominating Molly Jong Fast to be the ambassador of X. France. That's a really good one. Yeah. Yeah, I know, because you want to sit and eat croissant. I got it. I mean, no, it's just a very good ambassadorship. And, you know, it's a, or Italy. It, I'll take Italy. It's a great ambassadorship. So the, the letter goes to the president of France, the head of state, not the head of government, the head of state. And they take anywhere from one to four weeks to respond. And they can say, we decline this person. And they don't have to give a reason. They generally don't. They generally don't. They generally accept whoever is put forth, or we can accept them. And then once they've been accepted, then that person goes through all the vetting that the U.S. government does, the Senate confirmation, the security clearance, all that stuff. If they don't even get to square one with their host country, their name is withdrawn. So clearly, had Marie Ivanovich's name been put forth to Zelensky, she was already the ambassador, so Zelensky really, you know, didn't have to deal with this issue. But had she been a new ambassador and had she, her name been put forth, based on what Zelensky said on that call, he may very well have rejected her before Trump had a chance to fire her. And again, I'm speculating. Who knows? Yeah, you are speculating. This was very interesting. Tell me one last thing. Do you think now that we're ensconced in this situation in Ukraine, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, I'll tell you, Boris Johnson just wrote a terrific op-ed in The Wall Street Journal. His op-ed argues, and this is where I'm fully supportive of the Biden agenda in this case, which is to put the pedal down and end this war. We need to give the Ukrainians full support. Our allies need to step up and the war needs to end. There is no negotiated end, as Boris Johnson argues, and I agree with him completely. There is only a negotiated end when there's a military end. And the only military end is the eradication of the Russians that don't belong there from Ukraine. So I agree with what President Biden is doing right now. I wish he would do more, and I wish he would do it more intensely, because that's what's protracting this conflict. But he is on the right track. Thank you so much. Nick Turner is president and director of the Vera Institute, as well as head of Vera Action. Welcome to Fast Politics, Nick Turner. Thank you. I could not be more excited to be here. So first, Nick, I need you to tell us what Vera is and what it does. So the Vera Institute of Justice is a national organization that works to end overcriminalization, so reduce arrests of people in this country and then to reduce mass incarceration. And we work with impacted communities all around the country and leaders of government who are committed to making the same kinds of changes that we're seeking to make. This is like the absolutely the worst thing I've ever heard. There used to be a ban on Pell Grants for incarcerated students. There did. Explain to us what Pell Grants are and how this works. So Pell Grants are, are federal financial aid for um, for uh, students in, in need, so for low-income students. And back in 1994, Congress passed a bill that's referred to as the 1994 crime bill that eliminated the use of Pell Grants for incarcerated students. And what that did is that essentially ended all of the revenue streams that were necessary for colleges to run programs in prison. So right. like if you do that before and after, like right up until that 
moment, there were about 700 programs and college programs in prison, and then there were only eight after that action took place. So back in December of 2020, Vera, with a broad coalition, actually worked to put those Pell Grants back in place and got Congress to allow them. And so we're right now in the process of getting colleges and prisons ready. It's actually in 48 different states around the country. Uh, there are 203 colleges that are already serving students. And then that number is going to really grow once uh, the Pell Grants turn on in full in July of 2023. So that's a great example of the kind of work that we do. It's so, so important because we have a large number of incarcerated people and they're just, you know, this is an opportunity for them to get back into the world. It's an incredible thing. I mean, it's a, it's like the kind of smart, common sense, bipartisan justice reform that, you know, that we're seeing all around the country where it works well for um, people who have paid their dues to society. They're ready to uh, come back to their families to earn an income, to get a job. And what we've seen is that the, you know, the, the mere investment of Pell Grants to give these, uh, to give incarcerated students a chance increases their opportunities, you know, uh, to get a job, to have a higher income. It reduces recidivism, recidivism, exactly. Like, so they, you know, and, and helps them to, you know, be the kind of role models that they want to be for their, for their um, kids and to reduce the likelihood of their kids going into prison. So it's like a win, 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 and just the kind of thing that we need to see in the justice system. So one of the things that Fox News spent a lot of time talking about this election cycle was crime and how crime, 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 crime. There's even a video of people screaming crime. I don't know. I I, believe it. Right. Again, I don't know why. What? Explain to us how Democrats, because it does seem to me like everything they're thinking about is just explain to me what is happening here. Yeah, you know, I mean, what you observed is is right. And there are these, you know, here in New York where you and I are, I mean, the Republican candidate, you know, Zeldin, I remember seeing ads on TV of just these montages of security camera videos showing violent acts taking place. He obviously ran on a, you know, tough on crime platform and said that Hochul was really soft on crime. But the, but the point that you made about Fox News and sort of the media infrastructure of the right is totally true. And what we saw in Republican campaigns, I think Republicans spent more money on crime ads, like it was over $150 million than they spent on, you know, the Democrats are messing up the economy ads, right. which I think they spent around $100 and, or $100 million. And the reason that that happens is that People were worried about safety and security. Crime has risen in the past two years. And it's a way to sort of like tap into what I describe as like the lizard brain of people. Right. Like you, people are fearful. So like tap right into that. That's been an old political ploy for years and years and years. And you you probably remember this, but it goes back to Willie Horton and the... Let's not assume I'm any older than I am, but yes, hey, I do I remember would never. this. Yes, I never, ever. Yes, yes. But I think that's a good point. Let's like deep down dive on this. Like Republicans do feel like, and we see in the mainstream media a lot, like Republicans have the lock on crime. People want, but what, what is the Republican plan on crime? That's a great question. And, and you would think with the kind of spending and the push that the Republicans made, all of the what I will say is sort of inaccurate and inflammatory rhetoric in the, you know, in the campaigns that they would in fact have a lock. But one of the things that we saw in the camp post-election was actually, it wasn't a referendum in favor of the Republicans. Voters 
pretty much said across the country is we want something different. Yes, we want safety and safety is important for all of us. And it doesn't really matter what the color of our skin is or like where we live. We're concerned about that. But we don't believe in the zero sum game that you're peddling because basically what the Republicans peddled in the election was Democrats aren't keeping you safe. You know, we need to be tough on crime. We need to lock people up. The problem is all of these reforms that Democrats have put into place, whether it's bail reform or, you know, progressive prosecutors around the country. And we're going to, and we're going to toughen things up. But, but people generally didn't, didn't buy into that. You know, I could give you a few examples, but I think the really important thing to note is that on some level, what the campaign argument was, was you want safety, you can't have justice. Right. And what we know the American people want is we want safety, but we believe we can have justice too, and we demand it. So there can, I, if I can just tell, you know, allow me to sort of nerd out here a little bit. Yeah, please. That's what we do here. Avira Action did a, an exit poll and it showed that 69% of voters, of actual voters, said that crime was one of their top issues. But another really important poll that came out also showed that 70% of likely voters thought it was really important to reduce jail and 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 prison populations and supported justice reform. And, and that included a high percentage of Republicans and independents. So what people are calling for, what voters are calling for, is not this lock them all up, we feel unsafe, but we feel unsafe, but what we want are honest solutions. We don't want to go back to the old police jails, prisons are the thing that keeps us safe because we don't believe in it. Right. Well, and it is also, I mean, it's interesting to see this because we here we are in this country where a lot of Americans and I mean, even like the donor class, which tends to be very slow in certain ways has decided that like mass incarceration doesn't serve anyone. Right. Right. I mean, and, you know, you're seeing like the Koch brothers are, yep. you know, so I mean, and it's also I mean, besides that, it's also very expensive. It's like not a great thing to do to people and it doesn't help them. It doesn't rehabilitate them. And it's also very expensive. So I'm curious to know, like, what do you think the Democratic Party should be doing in order to message crime Better. That is such an important question. I'm really one of the reasons why the why we saw Republicans investing so heavily in using this, you know, the inflammatory rhetoric and putting all of this money into making Democrats look soft is that when you look at voters as a general matter, voters tend to trust historically Republicans more than they have trusted Democrats. So the Republicans have preyed upon that sort of soft label. What we need from Democrats, and this is really important, we need it from Democrats, we need it from anyone who believes in justice and fairness and wants to advance reform, is a really solution-based response to people's concerns about crime and safety. And by that, you know, what I mean is that it's a mistake to be silent about it. Right. You know, what we saw some candidates do, Republicans would attack them and then they would quickly deflect and talk about something else. Let's talk about January 6th. And so what that told voters is like, hey, like this is a kitchen table thing. I'm nervous about this and I don't hear you addressing it. So the first thing that I think is really important for Democrats to do is to ad address people's safety and concern issues and say, yes, I hear you. Everyone has a right to be safe and secure. And we have the solutions. What we don't have 
what we're not interested in doing is is applying scare tactics and uh, you know and hyperbole. But here, what the solutions are, you know, and there are strategies that really that that work to deliver safety that to invest in you know uh, mental health specialists to handle 911 calls when someone is having a breakdown right um, you know rather than sending the cops to invest in uh, something called restorative justice which right. victims appreciate um, and to invest in reentry programs so that when people are coming out of prison they are given the kinds of supports that they need to be successful and to and to not as to you know as you said earlier like to recidivate democrats have to have to address that safety issue. And I think we have been a little hesitant to do so. It's funny because I'm thinking a lot about uh, Val Demings, who I've had on this podcast a Mm -hmm. number of times and who was a police chief and a member of Congress and married to a mayor of Tampa, Florida. And he was a policeman, too. She is as pro-police as you can get. And her message was like there are some places that you shouldn't send the police, right? Like that you need to, you know, when with the mental health stuff and we've seen, think of all the videos we've seen of the police killing mentally ill people, right? Like those are not the times to call the police. And then there are times to call, you know, like there, there's a place for social workers in crime. Totally. Yeah. Or quote unquote crime. That's exactly right. Look, I mean, there's this fact, I mean, if you look at arrests that happen in the the country, there are around 10 million arrests every year. And if you break the them down, 5% of them are for violent crimes. Yes, the police are the appropriate responders for that. But then if you like 80% of those arrests are for conduct that relates to poverty or mental illness or homelessness or substance use. And so just the point that you're making and that, you know, Demings made that we have available to us other responders, mental health specialists, homeless, you know, and housing specialists for homeless people who might be in the, you know, in the subway here in New York or elsewhere, or substance use specialists, and to use not only not just rely, as we have in this country, on sort of traditional law enforcement, but to rely on the, the public health system to provide some of the responses that ultimately keep the community safe. I think there's one, you know, one of the things that I think is really hard for Democrats, and I understand this, and I understand it also as a, as a reformer and why we've sometimes, it's been hard for us when we see people uh, people or when people talk about crime and safety, we don't want to engage that conversation so much because public safety has always been used as the argument, like public safety for whom? It's always been the argument for more police, more jails, and more prisons. But the important thing for us in the reform community and for anyone who supports justice to recognize is that our communities demand safety just as much as so i'm black and filipino and i remember conversations with my uncle uncle clyde you know here in brooklyn who i would talk a lot about the justice reform that this organization that my organization vera was doing and he was and he would always ask about well is that going to keep me safe right am i going to be safe walking on the the sidewalk or or in in the subways and i didn't do a good job of answering that initially and and i and i recognize that that's really that that's a fundamentally important thing for us to to answer. But what I also know about my Uncle Clyde is that he didn't believe in the same old solutions of stop and frisk or 
you know, or or more jail and prison. He just he wanted a he wanted a solution. And and black communities in this country right do want a solution for crime. Do want a solution, but there's been hesitance to acknowledge that. Yeah, and I think that that is you know we have no mental health system for these people, so it's like jail is where they go. And I think that that it's such an interesting time in American life because like these are people who don't I mean like the person who is sitting on my you know block is not a criminal but they do need you know they're they're probably in need because it's very cold out you know and that's the thing we don't have you know a great way to look at this problem that's both compassionate and we we haven't traditionally but you know I have to say that I I think we, despite everything that we saw in the election and all the ads and the video that you talked about, I think that that we are making progress. And and so you know I so you know I see all around the country there are municipalities that are that are starting to respond in the exact way that you just mentioned in Denver, in Albuquerque, yeah. here in New York, in West Hollywood, and lots of different places are hiring mental health specialists, safety ambassadors. So not necessarily relying on cops who are getting out of their car with sidearms to ad- address a matter that is really not a criminal matter. It's a different kind of need. So we're seeing that in many, many places around the country. And we're seeing, like we just talked about when we were discussing Powell, you know, 48 states around the country that are saying, look, we got to do something smart here. People have paid their debt and we want to help prepare them to succeed. A college education is hugely important for getting gaining employment now. And so, so the rhetoric is something, but the American people want something different. And all around the country, we're, we're seeing pretty profound movement to get the kind of stuff done that we've been talking about. And I'm and I'm really hopeful about that. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. This was so interesting. And I'm I'm really glad that we got to chat about this. Thank you, Molly. I'm I'm really grateful to be uh, able to chat with you about it too. And now your moment of fuckery. George Conway. What? Uh, hi, I'm sorry. I, I just woke up. <laughs> something put me to something put me to sleep. George is here for our special post-Trump announcement recap. I need some coffee. Whoa, that was that was that was. I mean, he made Jeb Bush look like a nuclear power plant. That was so low energy. I mean, you think MAGA now stands for Make America Groggy Again? He, he was teleprompter Trump, and it was that sleepy, not, you know, he's bored when he can't I say something terrible. I'm reading this and can't say mean things about Ron DeSanctimonious. And also, the crowd wasn't the typical QAnon crazies. It was so... Low energy as well. The guy who wears the wall suit was there. Oh. You know? That's the only wall he ever really built. Yeah, that guy, and he has an incredible mustache. Pillow guy was there, right? Pillow guy was there. Ivanka was not. Maybe this was just a pillow advertisement. That's it. That makes, now it makes sense. The the top lines that I saw, and CNN did 25 minutes. And they got so bored with it, they... 
you know, they went cut back it to, off. they cut it off. Even Fox, I heard, cut it off. 45 minutes. Yeah, no, you, you, you got to make it short and sweet and punchy. And CNN, I mean, CNN did have Daniel Dale on to fact check. Oh, about- Daniel Dale, man, he's, he's, he's back in business. Right, exactly. He's back in business. He's going to get another raise. But we saw him on the uh, strategic. Daniel Dale was making excuses for Trump. So there are not as many lies as his normal speech because he's reading off a teleprompter. But there's still a lot of lies. And let me go through them. But the thing that's interesting about Trump, even at his best behaved, he's still like stuck on all of these 1990s things. So he complained about how the American people don't spend enough time worrying about nukes, which I think we do. And then he said that Biden emptied the strategic petroleum reserve, which isn't which true. Isn't actually, true. he actually did this. Well, it's actually true that the strategic petroleum reserve went down, apparently, during Trump's time in office. And then, I mean, it's it feels like silly to fact check him because oh, you know, because he's just like we well, expect him to actually say say accurate things. We don't. Although he said the 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 missile struck fifty miles inside Poland is like no. Four miles. Everybody said four miles. It's the you know somebody should just send them the classified information so that he will have the accurate information. <laughs> well, I mean, I think either way, you send him the classified information, you send him the unclassified information. Either way, he's going to have it wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I had like a little bit of an existential crisis while I was watching it because I was like, we've been fucking doing this since 2015. Like those hours of my life I will never get back. I'm 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 going through Twitter now seeing quotes from parts of the speech that I didn't see because CNN cut away and I fell asleep. Um, (laughs) Maggie Haberman saying that he said, I'm a victim. I'm such a victim. (laughs) missed that one. Yeah, I didn't see that. But yeah, I mean, I think that it does feel like, I mean, it's just the same thing he always does. Now, the question is, I think the, the million dollar question for all of us is like, will the Republicans come to their senses this time or will they just, you know, they bought the ticket. Are they going to take the ride? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. What do you think? I think that he's going to win the nomination because I don't think there's anybody going to be taking it away from him. I don't think DeSantis is going to run. I don't think Pence can do it. You know, I, I, I just think he's going to walk to the nomination, even if he gets indicted. Forty percent of the party is going to vote for him no matter what. And that's more than enough to win, particularly in a in a multi-party, multi-candidate race. And so and then he just loses again. And then finally, that does it. But it's not going to he's not going to lose quietly. He is going right. to. You know, if he gets indicted, he is going to incite problems. And he's even said he's going to do that. I mean, he said, there will be big, big problems if I'm ever indicted. He's basically said that in substance. I mean, he's basically, we're going to, you know, he's going to basically, it's going to be a call to arms again. And he has no compunction about causing violence, as we've seen. So that's not really, I'm not really hopeful of, you know, I, I don't think he's going to win, but I think we're going we're in for a rough, you know, I went for a rough two years. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. 
What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.